You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Katie Kaminsky and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Katie, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. How are you doing? How are things where you are today? Things are good. You know, it's uh, fall starting up. You can feel it in the air here in uh, Massachusetts. A little bit chilly. Starting to feel like uh, school starting, which is good for me. Yeah. It's yeah, it's funny you say that. Um this year is only um our second year where our kids are not starting school because they're in university now. So it doesn't feel quite the same, but I I remember uh, fondly the difference between having them home all summer and then suddenly school starts and everything quiets down. So I I feel you on this one. It's a nice it's a nice time of year. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Now, Katie, we obviously have some topics that we want to talk about uh, and I think people will be very um it'll be enlightening to uh, to see what you've been up to. But I always like to ask sort of in terms of other things that has been on your radar, things you've been sort of monitoring, you know, slightly or kept sort of an eye on. Is there anything going on in in where you are in the U.S. economy or in the world, around the world. It's not that there's nothing going on in the world right now. So anything you've been keeping an eye on? I just, I mean, Niels, this year has been so hard to figure out what's going on. I mean, I think that's the general theme for me. It's just there's different stuff going on in different places. And we had such an extreme event last year that people just haven't really, it's like sorting out the tea leaves. Nobody's sorted them out yet. Um and that's how it feels. And I think people really, I don't know. And I, I think it's, I'm excited to talk to you today because I, I think maybe you'll have some insights too. <laughs> you know, like it's it's a hard one, right? It's been a very particular year this year. Like a tight yeah, no, kind of. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And actually, I think it's quite interesting what you say even then. And that is, I think we often struggle a bit uh, when when asked, uh, I guess people, uh, a lot of people look at you for answers. Maybe they look at me for answers. And and the thing is this answer where we say, we, we just don't know. It's something that is quite hard and people might sometimes get a little bit disappointed when you say so. But I think you're absolutely right in describing that this year is just all over the place. Yeah, I mean, everyone was convinced in the beginning of the year that the recession was coming and now nobody's convinced it's coming and now everybody's convinced that we'll have rate cuts, which I disagree with. We can talk about later. Um, and I think everybody's ready for everything to go back to normal, and that's not happening. And everyone was excited that China was going to reopen. Everything's going to be great, and that hasn't happened. And I think we're just kind of stepping back and going, where are we? And we're standing on this tightrope. Do we step right? Do we step left? Do we fall if we do? Uh, do we fall in a pit of fire? Or do we fall into a feather bed, you know, so it does really feel like that kind of situation where we're not sure which way we're going and are we going to step in the wrong direction? Um, it felt that way all year this year. Absolutely. Well, lots of things to talk about, no doubt, um, in our conversation. Before we dive into all of that good stuff, uh, let me just sort of quickly, because we are recording on September 1st, so we just finished the month of August. Um, actually, it was, um, yeah, it was a little bit of a, I think overall, a little bit of a down month for the industry, although there's going to be some dispersion in returns. But I would consider it as a pretty uneventful August, at least compared to some of the Augusts that I've, that I've experienced in my career uh, with some crazy stuff going on. So I think we can we can sort of uh, have a sigh of relief saying, well, nothing too crazy went on uh, in, in August at least. From a performance point of view, probably what decided if people finished in the black or in the red is most likely a little bit of trend speed, I would imagine, uh, especially in stocks and bonds where we saw, you know, most of the losses um, is my, from what I can see. And also, of course, this is a month where for those managers, and this is probably not the big managers, I would imagine, but a lot of other managers that have exposure to smaller markets like Orange Juice, they might have had a slightly different experience in August than most of the big managers have, just because, again, talk about a crazy 
trend going on there, uh, which uh, which is quite fun. Uh, other than that, I would say commodities generally did okay for trend followers in August. And, uh, and that's probably where some of the, uh, or most of the profits uh, came from. My own trend barometer finished at 30. So that's still suggesting kind of a downward drift to uh, performance for trend followers. Um, so that's so far, at least from what I see, in line with the indices. The indices as of August 30th, so one day before month end, down half a percent for beta 50, down 1% for the month, uh, sorry, for the year. Sokgen CTA down a quarter percent for the month, down 1.3 for the year. Sokgen Trend Index down 62 basis points for the month and down 2% for the year. And the Short-Term Traders Index down 48 basis points for the month and down 3.5 for the year. Equities, of course, also struggled in August, down 2.55 for the MSCI World, but still up 14 and three quarters for the year. And the world government bonds down a quarter percent roughly and the S&P 500 down about 1.77% and still up 17% or so for the year. All right, Katie, with all the uh, admin stuff out of the way, now it's time to dive into some uh, interesting topics. The first one I wanted to ask you a little bit about, and of course, some of the what we're going to talk about today uh, is based on some of the amazing research uh, that you and your colleagues write about. So we should, of course, encourage people to read all of the papers that we're talking about today. We're not gonna we're not gonna read them for them today. We're gonna talk about some of the bullet points uh, from these papers. But the first one I think is very interesting because for many many years, I think a lot of uh, cr- critics of trend followers. Um, probably said, well, trend followers for the most part have made all their money in the last 20 plus years just being long bonds. And it's true. I mean, we made a lot of money from being long bonds. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about this uh, topic because you've been writing about, well, maybe from the fact that markets did move in generally in, in one direction in the bond markets, could certain biases have crept into the way we design our systems, et cetera, et cetera. So why don't you talk a little bit about uh, these things and the challenges? Oh, I love this topic. Um, We wrote this paper. It's called Beyond Bond Bias, Perspectives of a Systematic Trader. Um, And the reason this came about is that we work with a lot of institutions and we're very pure trend. And so a lot of institutions started coming to us and saying, not all the trend followers are taking, you know, you know, reasonable shorts in fixed income this year during 2022. And, you know, when we sort of started to look across the board at the positions and estimate them, we started to see that, you know, not all trend following systems were willing to necessarily um, take shorts um, in fixed income after we had spent decades kind of defending the exact argument that you just said, Niels. And so we started to ask the question like, oh my gosh, it's really quite reasonable that you can build in a long bond bias in your system just in multiple different ways because it's always better to be long bonds throughout most of history as as a trend follower. Um, And it's actually pretty much good to be long bonds in most scenarios for the last 40 years for anybody. And so what's fascinating to me, and I mean, I have this conversation with all sorts of investors, is that so few people have this concept. When you say short bonds, they say short duration. I say, I'm short bonds. And they look at me and they say short duration. And the reason is they've never thought about it. And then when, I mean, I actually had someone in the media, someone said, say to me recently, I said, I'm short bonds. And they say short duration. They said, how do you do that? They didn't know how. And and the reason is because it hasn't worked. And so we decided to try and think about, let's try and examine this concept from the concept of somebody who's not supposed to be biased. A systematic trader is supposed to measure opportunities and size positions as a function of their opportunity set. And so if you bias your system to reduce exposure to things uh, that are, you know, that you don't like or that haven't worked in the past, then when the world changes, you can tie your hands. And so um, that's kind of something that was fascinating to me last year, because when we looked at the data, it was possible that some people might have tied their hands. Um, And so when we did this, this particular paper, we started off by doing some empirical studies. 
and looking at the bond betas for different funds, and we did see a large variation in terms of beta exposure to short fixed income across many different funds. And last year, the biggest differentiator in performance, hands down, is how large was your bond short? And ironically, the, sh the bond short was, in notional terms, not that much larger than any sort of long bond notional that you'd ever see. So it's not like this was an outside, uh, outsized position or outsized beta. It was just, just a normal uh, short beta that you would see in any asset class, like you know commodities or dollar. And so to me, that was fascinating because it is like in our psychology that if something hasn't worked in the past, we don't want to do it. And last year was a perfect example where something that has never worked worked really well. Um, and so that to me was just such an interesting thought experiment uh, for me to think about is, you know, how do you build a bias into your system? Yeah. And when you looked at these different managers, were there certain clues that sort of came out of it saying, well, this is probably most likely for, for why it's occurred? I mean, is it time frame? Is it other things? That, or is it just the data they look at, they choose to look at that ends up creating this perhaps unintentional bias? So I would have loved to call them all up and ask them that question, to be honest with you, Niels. But um, I didn't have like, you know, the inside to the inside box. So instead, what we did was we said, OK, so we do see some differences. And then we stepped back and we said, OK, so we see some differences. Let's do a thought experiment. What are some of the ways that bias creeps into your system, both intentionally and unintentionally? And so we started in the paper, we divided that up, and we actually looked at how these different approaches might actually leak into uh, reducing your bond beta. So one of them would be, um, you could include you know, some constraints, for example. Um, so you kind of subtly add some constraints on your system, which kind of say, well, we'll just kind of shrink the position or cut the position when it gets big on the downside. Because... We don't like that, right? Um, another is that you can add other strategies or other things that might actually have that long bond bias, things like carry or other things as well into your system. And then finally, which was really fun in this paper, is we looked at machine learning. So you can look at data from the past and you can learn, oh, this is how I should rep respond to trends. And if you use data in the past, which particularly we tend to use data that's available uh, from the last 40 years, you can learn how to respond to trends and how fast and how slow. Um, and that will tell you how to trade those trends going forward. And that particular approach will also uh, include a bias more unintentionally, but data-driven. And we found using these approaches, we can explain that both constraints might explain it, but you could also have data or the way that you sort of design your your system, even using machine learning, could easily learn a bias um, that might cause you to be reticent to actually take a short position, even though um, a very simple trend model, like your moving average, would be screaming, short the bod. Um, your machine learning model might say, watch out, um, don't do that. Um, or your constraint would say, don't go there. Um, and so I think that was very fascinating is that we couldn't actually ask managers that question. So we asked ourselves the question, if we're building a system, how could you build in this bias into your system? You know, it's funny when I hear you say that, Katie. Um, I mean, of course, you're absolutely right. And and um, and we've come across this in, in certainly in one other sector, and that's equities when people are, uh, certainly investors would say, well, you know, I have, I'm long equities, generally speaking, so I don't really need trend follow to be long equities. And then some managers have actually then responded at saying, well, we have all these building blocks, you can take the equities out from the long side or whatever it is. But interestingly enough, I've actually never really come across that discussion when it comes to bonds. Nobody has ever called me up saying, I don't like you being long bonds. Uh, have you, I mean, is this something you've come across Uh no, because bonds always worked. <laughs> the reason they say that is that bonds are, I mean, I love you asked this question because in, in another paper that we're going to talk about later, like you wanted to ask about, the frequency on bonds is just different, right? So 
we most of us have not been working in the financial markets during a period like the 70s or another period in history where bonds were upsetting. And I think the other challenge with bonds, and this is something that puzzles me to this day, is that bonds have fixed cash flows. So people always perceive them as unrisky. And and there's this concept too, and I've been scratching my head about this all the time recently because in the and we'll talk we can talk about this more later because it's so fascinating, is that this idea that you know you can get five percent for a two year and you can get a four percent for a ten year, to me it's it's confusing. And when you ask people that, like why would you why would you buy that? Um, it's fixed, <laughs> like it's and something about the fixed nature and the yield of those assets, it it naturally lends itself on a longer time horizon to make sense. But it's it's something about that fixed nature and the fact that it already has a yield that people don't think about NPV effects. So when yields go up and you own a fixed cash flow, guess what? You lost money. But as long as you don't talk to your neighbor and realize you have a worse mortgage, you don't care. And that's kind of like an intrinsic bias that people have that that is there in fixed income that we haven't thought about because we've been in a falling rate regime for 40 years. And I think people don't think about it. It's interesting. Yeah. It, it is. It's fascinating. One other thing that I think a lot of investors may, may not um, know is, of course, and, and this doesn't necessarily have a huge impact. You would know this much better than I do, but people may not realize that actually futures markets, which is what we predominantly as an industry uh, are focused on, they were really commodity only up until the 70s, uh, early 80s. And of course, since the early 80s, we've had falling interest rates. So all the data we can get on futures uh, for, for fixed income is kind of in more or less one direction. Now, I'm not saying that necessarily influences a lot, but I'm curious, and, and you may not know the answer, it's a little bit unfair for me to ask it perhaps, but if you're a manager that generally wants to trade universal parameters or treat all markets equal rather than having specific parameters for certain sectors, et cetera, et cetera, I think it's fair to say that most of the big managers have probably more bond markets uh, in the portfolio than any other uh, sector. Maybe currency. Some people have a lot of currency. I don't know. But how much does that actually influence if you want to trade universal parameters um, does, does it kind of tilt a little bit to towards, yeah, it, it will end up picking, we're going to end up, I say picking, but that's not what I meant, I mean, but we, we end up having parameters that tend to work quite well for what we've seen in bonds for the past 40 years, um, yet still, you know, works okay for, for other sectors. Well, I think, I mean, you're asking a question that's actually universal for all hedge funds. I mean, I think that's an issue and I got this question the other day because someone said to me, yields are higher, so your funding rate is higher. And I said, well, that's not how futures work. Actually, it's good for us because we're going to get carry on our collateral and we can short bonds. So we're actually shorting bonds right now and earning collateral. And he was like, what? <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. But no, it is true that I think everybody right now has to go back to the drawing board and ask themselves the question, how much are your strategies that you've developed dependent on a falling rate regime? Because if we move to a new regime, it could be the case that a lot of strategies and approaches, whether it's value, whether it's anything that you're using in your portfolio, if it's dependent on a more of a falling rate regime, you can have a very different result. And I think that's where this long bond bias is so fascinating is that we're so used to this particular regime and the only people who, you know, you, you go to the dinner table and you talk to your parents or something and they complain about mortgage rates in 1978 and you kind of listen to them and go, okay, okay. <laughs> but I mean, the truth is, is that there were different regimes and I'm not saying this is the seventies, but if we are in a higher rate environment and we do actually have higher rates for a longer period of time and we're no longer in a falling rate environment, some strategies don't work as well in the same environment. I mean, there's one thing you said also early in our conversation that I thought was quite interesting uh, when we talked about that this year feels a little bit strange. And then there's this thing about that people expect things to go back to normal. And if they find normal as 
pretty much zero interest rates and 2% inflation and, and all of that stuff. But of course, for, for well, I certainly couldn't say it about you, Katie, but for myself, who's been around long enough to know that that is not normal. And again, maybe based on some of the conversations you have with people, but I... When I when we interview people on some of the other series in 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 this uh, on the podcast, they don't necessarily expect us to go back to quote unquote the way it was for the first two decades of of uh, of this century, and I kind of share that. Uh, in particular, I share also what we recently discussed with uh, Neil Howe about the fourth turning and how these periods tend to be very disorderly that they're all often associated with high inflation, high interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. Now, as systematic investors, we don't make any forecast whether that's true or not, but we do look at historical data and we tend to think that markets, uh, you know, I wouldn't say repeat themselves, but it certainly rhymes with what we've seen before. So I'm not sure where I'm going with this as a question, but I am puzzled about this thing. People expect things to just go back to the way they were and I'm not sure they they will. And and where does that leave investors really, uh, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, that's the conundrum for me too. I mean, I think sometimes, and maybe this is me having my own bias because I used to be an MBA teacher. And like, I remember we had negative energy prices in one year. And then we also had negative interest rates. And I was teaching a class and I was like, think about that. <laughs> and I just stopped and I was like, and then the students looked at me and they were like, I what do you mean? And then they came back and said, I don't, I don't understand. And then I said, well, neither do I. And so and then, um, so what I'm saying right now is what's puzzling me is we're in this world right now where short-term rates are high, longer-term rates are low, inflation is high, and we're expecting, the whole world is expecting that we're going to go back down to zero, which means they're expecting rates to get cut and everything to go back to where it was. Whereas the MBA teacher in me is saying like, where's the term? We need like a term premium. And if there's stress and risk in the world, there's inflation, then we need to have a yield curve that looks logical and people need to be paid to like hold risk over longer horizons. And if we have all this dislocation and supply chain issues and like waves of cycles of valuations of commodity prices, then we're kind of more back in a normal economic cycle, which is doesn't necessarily mean a disruptive cycle, just a, a more you know normal economy than when I'm sitting there going, okay, so what does it mean when you have a negative oil price? right? it's It's more like a normal supply demand mismatch sometimes. and and so to me, I think that's where we're trying to go, at least in my head, we're trying to go to, a normal economic scenario where, you know, you have economies that are disjointed, like sometimes China is trying to figure out how to get back going and the U.S. is figuring out if they've slowed too much or not. And, you know, you have some inflation and some, you know, that to me, I know that it's upsetting when you're used to zero interest rates, sounds pretty much like a textbook economic scenario. So if that's the case, you know, I feel like it'd be better if people tried to think about that as the new normal instead of trying to see how we can get back to where we were. It it reminds me of one of the things that I think, I mean, you've you've been first a couple of times talking about certain concepts. And and I think I think certainly for me, um, you must have been one of the first ones who kind of had a really nice way of visualizing convergent versus divergent uh, strategies. And and I think in a sense what you're painting a picture of here is just to say, well actually for the most part, markets are divergent, but we've had this convergent period of extreme carry where central banks were in control, uh, economies were synchronized for about 20 years, inflation was not a problem, so we could keep interest rates, you know, to the floor, but that's just not how the world normally operates. And now we're slowly, or maybe we are fast moving towards a world that is more normal, but that no, but that normal world is divergent in nature, and and this also is why I think you and I sit back and we look at this year and we're thinking, we have no real sense of a theme. I mean, there's been so many things going on at the same time, and of course, uh, and sorry for this to be such long winded, but people have in the past often talked about trend following as being a long 
volatility strategy. But you always came out saying, well, it's actually long divergence. Um, and, and so can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's a good refresher for people at, at this point in time. Yeah, and I'm glad you bring that up because we haven't talked about convergence and divergence in a while. And this is like, this is a great new paper. No, just kidding. <laughs> now I got to come back and write another paper. Um, yeah, I mean, I think convergence strategies are really looking for things to kind of converge back to something, whereas divergence strategies are following things that are breaking out. And in a world where things are changing and breaking out, it definitely feels like that was last year. And this year feels a little bit of both, right? Um, and I think as somebody who trades a divergent strategy, it's it's really sort of this type of environment is it's more interesting a divergent world, right? So a world where all monetary policy is converging actually is, is not great for the active trader um, because everything is kind of converging to the same thing. And it's more about the long-term investor and it's about buy and hold and it's about risk premia. But I guess you're right. That's not really, hasn't been sustainable over centuries. If you think about it from a long-term perspective, um, it's not necessarily the best strategy over centuries. Uh, it's worked really well for a short period of time. So I do think that that's a concept to reconsider and think about again. I'm going to go back to the drawing board on that. You just gave me a good idea for a new paper. Thanks, Niels. <laughs> My pleasure. Speaking about new papers, I do want to talk about another paper that you wrote. And we can always come back. I mean, we're going to mix and match this conversation because there's just always so many uh, great things to talk about when, when when we get together. And um, But you did write another one that caught my attention, certainly, um, because it is another thing that is really very um, close to your uh, to your heart, but also what, what you're known for. And it's the word crisis, but then again, you raise the question, well, is it a crisis? Is it a correction? And and all the challenges that comes with that simple question. So I'd love to spend some time on this, and maybe you can talk about uh, some of the things you, you found and you, and you wrote about. Yeah, so let me tell you, the name of the paper is Crisis or Correction, Managing Expectations for Managed Futures Um I think that, yeah, that's the end. That's that's long enough. The, the funny part is this paper was published in 2018. Um, and if you remember 2018, we had the Volpocalypse and then we on, I think it was February 5th. And then we had a really tough day on October 16th, um, which were these really sharp V-shaped recoveries. And many of the clients that we worked with started coming to us and saying like, the market's down, you didn't make money. What happened? <laughs> and and it was really hard because they they loved the term crisis alpha. Let's just be honest. It was something they loved. And so we said, you know, this is a correction. It's not a crisis. Um, let me explain. And so we wrote this paper and it's called Crisis or Correction. And we wanted to really differentiate the difference between a crisis and a correction to help our clients understand expectations for the strategy in these type of environments. So a crisis is a sustained period of losses, which does not recover quickly. A correction is a period of losses which recovers quickly. And so the key difference there is if you think of something like the Volpocalypse, yes, it was terrible, but it was gone within a week or two. Um, the same thing in October of 2018. It was came and it went. Um, when you look at more severe drawdown periods, those are more of a crisis than a correction. And so what we did in this new paper and what was really fun about it is we started getting a lot of questions last year. Are we in a crisis or are we in a correction? What's happening? Where are we in the cycle? And another really interesting thing came out and we just talked about bonds. Are we in a bond crisis? And it was the first time I heard that ember um, in in many years, right? And so this time we actually updated the paper and examined crisis periods for both fixed income and equities and examined managed futures performance during crisis and correction periods, as well as recovery periods of crisis to understand expectations of what typically happens for the strategy during these. And so if you look at the results from the paper, it's very interesting. And we have some nice bubble charts. I love bubble charts <laughs> with color. Um, and red and green, so you can see like good and 
good periods and, and challenging periods. And um, what you see there is managed futures really likes a crisis. Managed futures can struggle in a correction, whether it's fixed income or equity. And this makes total sense because a correction is when the world is standing somewhere and it moves quickly in the other direction and then it moves back. And when you're a systematic trader, you're following where the market's moving. And if it moves quickly against you, you don't have time to go with it. You don't have time to pivot. Whereas a crisis happens, unfolds, and you have to move with that crisis. And you have to find those opportunities in the wake of something very volatile. Corrections, unfortunately, they're sort of like pops of volatility. And this is why we're not necessarily long volatility. It's basically pops of volatility that sort of shudder against your signals and then go back to where you were. And that's never good for a system about detecting direction. And so this paper was really helpful because it helps to give a nomenclature of when you're in a correction, it's not necessarily clear. It depends on where we're standing in that correction. If we're standing in the right position, we might do well in a correction. If we're on the other side, not necessarily. Um, and then if it's a crisis, we have the time to actually pivot uh, to try and capture what sort of happens in the wake of a crisis to um, to do to potentially capture that crisis alpha that we're, we're trying to capture um, in market trends. What makes these things even more confusing, Katie, is that what may for some feels like a crisis, it doesn't actually show up in the data as a crisis, meaning it can be very orderly, uh, yet it can be very painful. And and the way I would visualize that is, of course, uh, is also just how uh, sort of the, the appetite for long vol strategies goes in and out because they tend to come back in, in flavor after like a situation like uh, COVID. Um, and then you have a year like last year where actually stocks were also down, uh, you know, a decent amount. And yet, long vol strategies didn't do so well. I have a couple of questions uh, about these things that I'm, I'm personally curious about whether you found anything uh, about this. First of all, I've noticed, uh, and this could be like the famous last words, right, where you say, I've noticed that crises, quote unquote, corrections are becoming shorter and shorter in time. And then as soon as you say that, you have a major long term <laughs> crisis ahead of you. But since we don't know what's ahead of us, um, I have noticed that that there are more corrections than there are crises, it seems like. Um, do you think that has anything to do with just the um, kind of how the, the world uh, is, is, I wouldn't say operates, but I think you know what I mean. I mean, why are, why are we seeing shorter and shorter crises uh, compared to, you know, 20 years ago? So... I might actually disagree with you a little bit. Oh, by good. all means. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I, yeah. I felt that way in COVID. I really did because that was so fast and it moved so fast back. But if you look at the data, because I'm such a data person, you know, that if you look at the data in this paper, that's what's kind of fun is there's not a lot of like major crisis events. There's only a couple really big ones, right? Last year was pretty bad and pretty long. So it was pretty long and pretty bad for equities and pretty long and pretty bad for fixed income. And so it was a very long, I mean, that's what amazed me. Like, let me give you the example. Last year, at the beginning of the year, I asked all the people in the room in an audience probably a hundred times last year, do you think rates are going up? And everyone said, yes. And I said, what are you doing about it? And they said, nothing. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I said, anyone here short bonds? And they'd say, no. <laughs> you know, like, so that's what, I mean, like, that trend was so long and nobody and and the fed came out every day and said we're going to fight inflation pay attention and and it was so slow so i mean so i agree with you there has been some really fast ones i think in equities right but some of them have been pretty slow and actually that trend in in commodities that we saw and that's not a like a crisis trend, but the trend we saw in commodities related to inflation, that was also super slow. And that's kind of related to like the stress of inflation. I mean, I think the energy trend started, the long energy trend started in the spring of 20 and stayed until 
uh, the spring of 2022. So it was a two-year like long trend that was relatively positive. So I, I do agree that I think especially equities, I think that might be true. And this could be the case in equities because people are paying attention. People are, you know, actively involved. There's retail trading. There's all this stuff. So what do you think about the hypothesis that that could be true for equity markets, but for some of the other markets, people are just not as actively involved? So like commodities or, you know, fixed income. So I still think there's definitely trades that are slower. Just equities definitely do feel faster. And 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 more corrective and 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 hard to trade, but they've always been hard, I think, too. Oh yeah, I mean, for sure. I think from a trend following perspective, it's a very difficult sector. Even though, and this is what's so is the word disconcerting for me. That is that so many people. Well, you see a lot of advertising for oh, you can become the next best, you know, the next trend follower, you just buy this course and it only talks about being, you trade equities, but actually equities is not necessarily the place you want to be a trend follower and people don't understand the importance of diversification, which is another whole conversation, um, maybe for another time. But you're right. I, I was referring mainly to, to equities. You're also right that last year was long, um, but I think this is what I referred to uh, earlier saying it didn't feel so much as a crisis, but you're absolutely right. It, you could say it was a crisis in many respects, and a lot of people, uh, institutional investors, lost a lot of money in this um, situation. So maybe we need to come up with another name than crisis alpha because we need to include the correction as well. I don't know. It's a challenge, Katie, for you. Yeah, it's, it's hard. <laughs> I mean, I think for me, I think about the way that I define a crisis is how much how much return is your client losing? And and right, it's like if they lose above a big enough amount, then that's a serious issue. Um, and I think what's hard, what was particularly hard with fixed income is I think a lot of people, like I said, they, you know, they have a money market fund or something and they just don't think about that it can lose money because they think, well, it has a yield, so it can't lose money. But I'm like, NPV. You know, um, and so I think that's what was hard last year is I've talked to a lot of retail investors that say that to me too. I mean, their financial advisors put them in these funds and and I said, when rights are going up, you don't want to buy bonds. You know, and and I think that's that's where it's it just always has been easy to do that. Just do it and you'll be fine. And last year showed that that's not the case always. And and I think that's hard to kind of conceptualize for a lot of investors who are used to that. Yeah. Before we move on to the third part of our conversation, which is more kind of maybe market related and, and stuff that's going on right now, given what we've talked about so far, I am curious because, again, you speak maybe to a lot more financial advisors than I do. And I'm always fascinated about how to position, in lack of a better word, or how to visualize for people how they should use trend following in a portfolio. Of course, I come from the school of thought that you should, you know, have it as a core allocation. It should stay there forever, et cetera, et cetera. I'm also facing a lot of resistance in that thought because people like to time things and, and maybe they don't necessarily agree, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that part of the conversation, do you think that's changed or, uh, you know, based on what happened last year and maybe uh, earlier this year as well, um, is there some? Is there a different narrative, or is there a different understanding of the role of trend following in a in a wider portfolio among the people you come across? I hope so. I mean, I think I think it's hard because you know anything new or different is always there's there's a learning curve, right? And I do think that you know part of what our goal is is to help people understand what they're investing in so that they know when it works and when it doesn't work. Um, but I think the key thing is really making sure that people add different things. So diversification. I mean, we all talk about this so much, but I do think, I really do, that since I started in the industry, there has been at least a lot of progress in the sense that people have learned about these things. They're starting to understand that it's important maybe to have exposure to other asset classes, that it's important to have exposure to alternatives, to things that might work in a different year. And a year like last year helps us, right? I mean, it just helps us. Of course, it doesn't help us when somebody expects last year to repeat itself. 
But it does help us to realize that there are proof points. There are environments where the 60-40 isn't there. And that gets people to go back to the drawing board and say, oh, geez, I need something else. Or, oh, bonds were my best friend for 20 years. <laughs> what do I put in here instead of bonds? Like, I always loved bonds. They were my true tried and true uh, investment. And they probably will be again soon if we could get a stable yield curve. So no offense. I'm not I'm not dissing bonds. I'm a short-term trader. They'll probably be fine in a year. But, you know, <laughs> like, but it's really goes back to the, the drawing board and says, hey, maybe we need some different things in here. At least that's what we are hearing from people, that they're open-minded to kind of think about things, which is good. Yeah, uh, which also actually um, kind of, leads me to ask you this question somewhat related, and that is, for the longest time at least, I remember talking um, to people about, well, trend following is, is and, and, you know, inspired by your, your, your writing and your wording about, you know, uh, diversifying it during crises, but we were always relating that to equity crisis, right? That was always kind of the understood um, crisis we were trying to diversify away from. But you raise a good point. I mean, last year was a wake-up call for many investors that actually a crisis doesn't have to be in equities anymore. So do you think, I mean, does that make it easier or harder for us? Because now there could be two different types of crises that people should diversify away from. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think I think it's both easier and harder. Um it's an easier word for us from a divergence center in that the world is more chaotic right now. There's a lot more stuff going on. So it's an interesting time to be a trend follower and to be trading actively, I think now, because there's just a lot of, in, in any type of more chaotic society and environment, there's more opportunity, there's more turbulence. But the challenge is for the traditional investor the simple solution doesn't work as well. And I think that's hard. So this simple, like just buy your stocks and your bonds and you're fine. Um, if that doesn't work, it is hard, right? Because it means kind of explaining, well, if this happens and this might happen, and then it becomes a bunch of combinatorics and, and that's hard. I mean, I personally have always had that view. Everyone comes to me and says, Christ dissolves as equities. Um, I actually wrote a few pa a paper a couple of years ago and P&I, which is called Crisis Alpha Everywhere. <laughs> so, and, and I loved it because the idea was exactly what you asked me. And it was this idea that crisis is really about sort of something disruptive, whatever it is, whether, and, and the reason I think, let me give you a good story for this, is that I remember being, I think it was in the Middle East on a trip at one point in 20, oh, I can't even remember the year, couple of years ago, maybe 2016. And I was there and oil prices had been down and people were just so upset. And it was just such a different thing because it felt like a crisis there. Whereas the US, the equity market was up, so everyone was fine. And the truth is, is the crisis or a crisis is in the eye of the beholder, right? It depends on what you do. I mean, so if you're, you know, dealing with oil prices, then that's your crisis. If you are exposed to fixed income, <laughs> then that's your crisis. So the truth is, is what's interesting to us is we like things that move a lot, whatever it is. And any crisis is really a moment where there are trends. And so hence we like crisis, whatever type of crisis it is. Some crises are not disruptive to everybody and others are. Um, and I think the bond crisis is a perfect example of that. People kind of ignored it and pretended it would go away and tried to not pay attention to it. Whereas an equity crisis, what do they do? They go and they look in their, you know, Ameritrade account or their other account or some other account that they have and they go, oh my gosh, my 401k is down, this is terrible. Um, and, and they didn't think about probably their bond fund or sort of what that meant um, as much. And that's where it's all about, you know, how people think about it and whose perspective it is. Somebody who owned all bonds probably might have felt pretty bad about it, right? So, I agree. It's it's It gets complicated. That's why I said complexity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it does get complicated. And and actually, I think that that your last um, sort of sentence about uh, people who may have been more exposed to um, fixed income, uh, 
which I think of as being Europeans in particular, um, and and European pension funds uh, specifically, uh, maybe for the longest time they didn't really pay a lot of attention to what we were doing in the trend following space because they didn't really have to. Uh, everything was honky dory; it was fine. And the small part they had allocated to equities, even if equities had a rough time, it didn't make a big difference. Well, last year it did make a big difference. Obviously, being Danish uh, and keeping on uh, an eye out for the Danish headlines, there were some uh, pension funds in Denmark that lost significant amounts of of uh, of their uh, assets, which also makes me a little bit concerned because I mean, yeah, of course, bond prices can correct and 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 we can have a period of time, but you know, if the cycle has changed, uh, you know, interest rates might go higher for the next two or three decades yet. Um, of course, we don't know that. It's not a prediction, but I'm just saying I think a lot of things could be helped by structural diversification, uh, as, as I think we both agree on. Anyways, the last um, 15 minutes of our conversation, Katie, I'd love to pick your brain about sort of global macro stuff, what's going on. I know you uh, have been um, in the media a lot lately, uh, talking about things um, that are not necessarily just trend following. So um, give me, give us a, a taste of what you've been uh, talking about, what you're, you know, what you're finding interesting in, in, the, in the global market. And we're talking on a day where payrolls have come out. And, um, you know, so what better than to talk about economics oh, and markets yeah i mean this has been to be honest it's been a little bit of a difficult august because the first part of this month we i really felt like we were we started to see a flatter yield curve right the bond shorts were starting to work um I, we started to see the flattening which i was hoping for which i was hoping for the steepening which would say like soft landing everything's gonna be good and it's been such a weird summer because we started off the summer with what we, you know, what our head of trading calls pause mania. So everyone's like, oh, it's a pause. Everything's great. You know, and then we stayed short. I mean, we've sort of seen short signals. I guess the biggest conundrum is bonds. I, I'm, I'm sorry to go back to bonds again. Bond signals from a trend flying perspective have been short all year. And that particular signal hasn't necessarily it got really in trouble in Q1 and it it hasn't really worked much but it has been correct to some degree uh, over the summer because if you look at the yields look at the yields for the 10 year you can see that the 10 year yield has come back um and you can look at the 30 year you can see that the whole curve has steepened um and it's flattened out a little bit so in some sense it's correct but it just, I'm not really sure where we're going. I, I think that's what the challenge for me. And then August came and the equity markets got spooked. Um, liquidity is always low in August, so who knows? People were have been concerned about China um, and equity markets been spooked about everything. And then we started to see correlation similar to what we saw last year. So we saw um, positive stock bond correlation. So stocks and bonds were selling off. The dollar started to rally and energy started to kind of rally and then puttered out a little bit with the China narrative. And so from a technical perspective, we started to look like last year. And of course, I got excited because that's like very similar to something that was working really well last year. Then the last week of August came around <laughs> and we started getting softer data. Um, and so some softer data came in. I mean, as you know, this week we had the jolts data. We also had some private payrolls. We had sort of an on-par PCE number. So all these numbers came in and they were kind of soft, a little soft. And so then the market got exuberant <laughs> again because like, yes, told you so. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of like a told you so moment for the market. And that is not very fun for trend following because basically what, I mean, you talked about the returns this month. It's not a great environment because we started to see a good trend and then the market kind of reverted again. So you can tell it's not like a, it's kind of like a back and forth. We can't figure out, are we going into this direction or that direction? And so this last week has been a kind of a day of reckoning kind of moment. Are we going to go to this narrative of 
are we moving into the data is looking weaker and softer? Is So let me ask you a question. Good news is bad news. I hate that. I don't know about you. Like everyone's excited. Yay, we have worse data in the labor market. I mean, I don't like that. I don't know about you because like people don't understand if that keeps going, then that's bad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or I don't yeah. know. Do you Completely. how do you think about that, Neil? No, I mean it's 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 true. It it is weird and it did I mean I think the um what's interesting about this to me is actually that the equity uh, bond correlation uh in 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 uh, to a large extent. And of course what what kind of tricked a lot of stuff up this year was really the um you know the SVB event in in March, right? I mean, it certainly to have taken the shine off some of the profits that would otherwise have been from being short fixed income. Because actually, and this is what's interesting to me is, or maybe the U.S. futures have not made new lows uh, compared to October last year, but actually, I think the German Bund did uh, this month. So, so, so when I hear people say, "Oh yeah, we," you know, we were. Bonds are going up. I'm just thinking. I'm looking at the data. I'm seeing. I'm, I don't just don't. I just don't see that. Um, so there is a lot of emotions uh, around uh, this theme right now, for sure, in the narrative that we see. Um, but you know, as as you and I know, uh, price tells its own tale, and and that's what we're going to be uh, following. But it does feel like a little bit of a fight going on. I don't. I don't know if it's a transition just yet. Because I actually think that there might still be higher yields to come before we get, because of course nothing goes in a straight line all the time. There will be a point in time where yields will have a period of time where it's where they go lower, uh, without a doubt. We just don't know when that is. So, Niels, I agree with you, and that's why this week has been frustrating because it's sort of like a head fake. Because my general view, and and I liked how you put it. You kind of said everyone says bonds are going up. And if you actually look at the price chart, take a look. No, they're not. <laughs> and that's why our signal, the, t- the technical signals say short. And that's why I'm, I'm, I keep saying that. And I feel like I'm the only person saying that. <laughs> and I got excited in August because some of the fundamental guys got up there and said, hey, we agree with them. And, and we've been alone this year saying that. And so what we've been saying, too, is if you look at recent commentary from the Fed. They focused on their potential upside risk to inflation. And if you think about this, inflation is still coming in much above target. So the fact is, yes, we have cooler data. So that might mean no further hikes. It doesn't mean we're at target. And so if we're not at target, then we're just going to sit here in no man's land and wait until we get to the target. So it's kind of like you're coasting in with a boat hoping that you kind of get to the right dock, right? And and that to me, what I think people underestimate, or at least feels to me that the market underestimates is the amount of time that that could take and how many missteps and potential ups and downs we might have on that trajectory that could cause rates to be higher for longer, which would mean that those long-term bonds are actually mispriced. And that's kind of what I've said, but I keep saying that, and and then people just kind of go, "What?" <laughs> so, um, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's the technical because we look at the technicals, right? So we're looking at what does the price tell us is happening. We're not saying what do we think should happen, and the price keeps going down. So for now, and so I, I think that's a very interesting dichotomy that the price is going down but people keep saying it's going to go it's going up right what does that mean Niels? yeah there's a big disconnect about the narrative and and what actually is happening and and we kind of started our conversation today talking about biases and i think this shows you know very clear bias uh among investors in general um that they just uh you know want things to go back to what they perceive as being normal meaning lower rates but actually, if we think back, you know, 50 years, well, normal is probably closer to where we are now, could even be a little bit higher rates that would be normal. And so uh, it's all in front of us. We'll, we'll Time will tell, so to speak. Um, um, but it will be interesting. And the other thing is, I think, generally speaking, after a strong year like last year, um, another narrative, of course, at the beginning of the year came out about, well, 
probably a lot of that profit will be given back by trend followers because it was such a good year last year. But actually, the industry is doing pretty well. I mean, yeah, we're gonna we we always will give back a little bit of what we made, and that seems to be happening. Um, but you know, we may be setting ourselves up for some new interesting trends. I mean, we've had to go through quite a big downward uh, move in energies and now things have turned around and I would imagine a lot of exposure is now going to the upside. And so if this inflationary story comes back and if a lot of that may be driven by, say, energies and other commodities, at least in some commodity markets, trend followers will be well positioned for that. Um, but we'll we'll see. The base effect is certainly coming out. I mean, there's not, I mean, or, or maybe it's, it, I don't know what the right narrative is, but we've taken out a lot of price uh, drops now. And if energies and other stuff starts to go up from here, that's going to show up in inflation numbers. It's just the way it works. Yeah, that's why I've been, when people have asked me, what are you watching? I'm like, well, let's watch where the cycle starts instead of where it ends, right? Like they're always looking at the end of the cycle. I'm like, let's look at oil prices or things that are going to, you know, cause a new wave. I was actually very shocked watching oil prices in August because that to me is was interesting. Like, oh, it started to move up. And I'm thinking, okay, if that starts moving up, that eventually pushes into things. So if we start to see something that is a problem in supply or some geopolitical issue or something, that has the ability to start a cycle of that as opposed to thinking about the result of it. Um, I, mean, I think those are important, but most of the time these things... I think that's why inflation is so interesting. At the beginning of this whole thing, I remember our trade, our head of trading saying to me, he goes, Katie, once inflation leaves the station, it's really hard to stop it. And it moves around in many places, and it's really hard to figure out where it's going. And I think that is really the truth, right? And so I think that's where we are right now. We're kind of in the aftermath of last year and trying to figure out, like, where are we now? Um, and so I think this year, we're going to look back in this year and say it's all obvious now, but it was clearly not obvious at the beginning. Um, if you took people's forecasts for this year, they're all going to be wrong. Yeah, and actually, that's another uh, great point you bring up there. I think that um, what the world benefited from was not in the last 20 years before, say, 2020, uh, thereabouts was not only low inflation, it was predictable inflation. And I think what we've definitely come into this period is unpredictable inflation, meaning it can be low from time to time and it can be really high from time to time. But it's going to, as you was right to say, it's going to change. Um, and of course, the great thing about what we do is that our systems, systems do adapt. They just don't adapt over a week or maybe over three weeks or four weeks. Um, but I think that's the strength of, of it. And I always, uh, when asked... I, I'm always fascinated by the fact that some of these strategies have been around for, you know, 40, 50 years um, and how different the environments have been, uh, how different the technology has been and all the quote unquote technolo technological revolutions we've been through, like people talk about AI now as the next, you know, great thing. Um, yet these quote unquote more simpler strategies um, have just continued to uh, adapt and thrive, really. So um, no doubt they'll continue to do so. Well, Niels, I'd say pe people are people. And that's what we, that's what the yeah. strategies work because people are people and behavior, human behavior persists throughout centuries, no matter how much AI or how much, how much advances we get in technology. We're just, we have we have our biases and we take them with us. That's what I would say. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So we kind of end where we started, meaning with biases. Katie, is there anything else I forgot to uh, bring up uh, today, or have do you think we've covered what we wanted to cover? No, thank you, and thank you for the suggestions. I've got some good paper ideas and. Uh, and I, I and I look forward to our next. Well, conversation. we'll be reviewing them every time you put out a new paper. You, we'll we'll talk about them on the upcoming uh, episode. Anyways, the good news for everyone is, of course, that Katie will be back in a few weeks. In the meantime, if you love these episodes, head over to your preferred podcast player, leave a rating and review. It does help the podcast to grow, and uh, of course, press follow so you can make sure you um, get any new episode that we release. Next week, I'm joined by Andrew Bear, so we're going to be 
tackling some questions about trend following again, but maybe from a different perspective, we'll see what's been going on in the replicator space and the ETF world, where today we saw the announcement of another um, big name uh, CTA that has joined the ETF world. The name will be withheld by me until next week when I speak to Andrew. From Katie and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.